0: What's with this band anyway? I don't get it, can you please explain? Wait, like bands play? Okay. What if this show wasn't called Bandsplain? Just kidding. It is called Bandsplain. I'm your host, Yossi Saleh. Um, This is a show where I invite music experts and professional nerds to explain cult bands to me. Today's episode is about Steely Dan. Uh, I didn't think I knew what Steely Dan sounded like, but it turns out I did. Uh, If you haven't ever been to a grocery store or drugstore in your life, this is what Steely Dan sounds like. Today, we're talking to a man who in this year of our Lord 2021, literally wrote a book about Steely Dan. Please note, while this show is not actually called Men Explain Bands to Me, today, this man will be explaining this band to me. (laughs) Welcome to the show, Alex Papadimus.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be the person who's going to sell you Steely Dan today. Although I should say that I have tried this with a lot of different people in my life. And if it works today on you, it will be the first time it's ever worked.
0: (laughs) We'll see. Alex, can you tell us who you are?
1: I am a writer from Los Angeles and a podcaster. I've written for the New York Times, the New Yorker. I was a staff writer at Grantland. I was the executive editor of MTV News for like five minutes. And I started out as a music critic. Uh, That was like the first uh, kind of writing I got paid for. And if you're a music critic, uh, I think sooner or later, Steely Dan finds you. The most recent thing I wrote about Steely Dan was uh, a retrospective review of their 1980 album Gaucho for Pitchfork's Steely Dan Week. I guess my most important credential right now as a Steely Dan fan is that I'm working on a uh, Steely Dan related book project uh, with the artist Joan LeMay. And I I can't tell you anything more about it, um, but it will be in stores at some point.
0: Amazing. Um, Well, now that we know who you are, Alex, can you tell us who Steely Dan is?
1: Uh, Steely Dan are primarily Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. Uh, who met at Bard College in the 60s and went to New York to try their hand as songwriters uh, writing songs for other people and found out that other people didn't really want to record the things that they were writing necessarily, so they started their own band. They were a band for a minute and then gradually just became two guys in the studio uh, kind of making magic with a rotating cast of session players. And they made... A string of albums that combined rock and jazz in ways that they had, no one had ever combined them before. And then they went on hiatus for like 20 years and came back and won a Grammy and it was very confusing and they beat Eminem and Radiohead and all of those people. Um And everybody was like, what, what, I don't even, I do not get it. So they were uh, like... When they were together in the 70s, they had a lot of like big hit songs and uh, super successful albums. And then for 20 years while they were gone, they sort of became this uh, strange cult band that uh, only people like me got into. And so they've kind of they've lived at sort of both ends of that spectrum. I guess I would have to say that they're my favorite band. Um, It's weird to have a favorite band, but I I think it, it, it might be them. Uh, There was a moment after Walter Becker passed away. I uh, tweeted about him or I Instagrammed about him and I thanked him uh, for starting my favorite band. It was one of those things that you say. And then as you're saying it, you realize that it's true.
0: Well, I feel like this is like a perfect time for us to start for those people who are like, okay, hold on. Who is Stealing Dan? Let's start with what you think is their like most obvious, most well-known, most recognizable song.
1: They had some monster hits. Throughout the 70s, uh, that's one of the most interesting things about them is that their music was so weird, and yet they uh, managed to land a bunch of stuff on the charts. Um, this one is the second single from their first album, and I think it was, uh, you know, uh, top 20 and not top 10, but it's the one that I feel like has is the most omnipresent. If you've ever been to the grocery store or ridden in an elevator, uh, you've probably heard "Reeling in the Years. Are you reeling? I am just I am probably seven years old riding in the back of my mom's Subaru listening to K Fog 104.5 in the San Francisco Bay Area, or perhaps 98.9 FM the City, which was a lesser known one. And that just, yeah, takes me right back to that. But it probably takes you back to like grocery shopping because you've heard this song before.
0: I was gonna say. It literally takes me to like the aisles of the Ralphs last week while I'm just trying to find my snacks and being like, who is this again?
1: So thoughts, feelings, emotions. What is that? Like, what's the knee jerk reaction you get from reeling in the years?
0: I mean, that song is like, it's like wallpaper to me. Do you know what I mean? Like, I've just heard it so many times. I have no visceral reaction to it anymore. Like, in fact, I was kind of listening more closely than I ever have. So closely, in fact, that I decided to look up the lyrics. Um, and here's what goes down in verse two. You've been telling me you're a genius since you were 17 and all the time I've known you, I still don't know what you mean. The weekend at the college didn't turn out like you planned the things that pass for knowledge. I can't understand. Okay. Like literally, what are they talking about?
1: It's a very cynical song. It's Donald Fagan kind of giving a, you know, sort of just talking to somebody whose life has not uh, worked out the way that they imagined it. And, you know, it's a very kind of an angry young man song. That's the interesting thing about them is that they are, they have a reputation for being dirty old men, but they pretty much had finished making their, all of their 70s records by the time they turned 30. Um, So they're in their 20s the entire time that this is happening. And they're, you know, coming to it from a, you know, 20-something guy's perspective, but they're Thinking about the world as if it has passed them by, like they really sort of wrote from the mindset of like people in their 60s who are like, "Man, I don't know about this this country," in the way these these people, the way that it's happening. Um, just very crotchety young men, dads, dads before they were ever in what a position they? to literally be dads, because you don't have to be the father of anybody to be dad in your sort of your spiritually. Outlook, right? And I think they spiritually were spiritually dad, spiritually dad. They were extremely spiritually dad. They were kind of like. You know, like, it's a good example, like, that they have all these, you know, they have all these jazz elements in their music, but when you actually, whenever they were interviewed about jazz, they would have a hard time naming, like, current jazz guys that they were really into, you know, they would sort of, they would hedge on the, that bet, but they were really into, you know, like, Duke Ellington and Charlie Parker. Like, they'd, be, they'd started out as, like, they, they were hippies and they took acid, they did all the 60s things, but by the 70s, they were really sort of looking backwards in a lot of ways.
0: Can you give us an example of that jazz influence?
1: Yeah, I can give you, uh, there's a ton of examples, but I feel like this is the strongest one because it is so obvious and you will get it immediately. But in order for it to be obvious, I'm going to play a little bit of the source material first. I'm going to play you, uh, this is a song by Horace Silver. This is the title song from his 1964 album, Song for My Father. Uh, Now, uh, for reasons that will be uh, super obvious in about two seconds, um, this is Ricky Don't Lose That Number from 1974's Pretzel Logic by Steely Dan.
0: Okay, well, literally everybody knows that song. Everybody knows Ricky Don't Lose That Number. So do I. I'm human. I just didn't know it was Steely Dan. Okay, but also, um, is the intro to that song not exactly the same as Wallace's? Uh, Is that his name? Wallace? Horace? Sorry, Horace. Is it not the same as Horace's song? It's not like a straight rip off of that?
1: You know, this is one of the complexities of Steely Dan uh, that we can get into, which is that although they seem to really like suing people who sampled them without permission, they seem to take a lot of like pleasure in that—not just you know the pleasure of uh, you know a job well done legally, but they seem to really enjoy it. Um, but they borrowed a lot of stuff from other people, and they actually got sued. At one point, not by Horace Silver, weirdly, but uh, by Keith Jarrett, uh, who is a another jazz piano player and sort of one of the most humorless men in the history of music. Um, who objected to their use of a, a little part of one of his songs in one of the songs on Gaucho. And that was actually resolved in Keith's favor. And Keith has uh, writing credit on that uh, the version that's on the album now. Um, I don't know if Horace ever had a problem with it. I, I don't think they heard from him, apparently. So, yeah, obviously that is, uh, you know, that's a very blatant version of... You know, the jazz influence on Steely Dan, you can really see it, obviously, that they were listening to jazz records and then dropping them into this kind of uh, smooth 70s rock uh, context. You know, but they also on all of these records, they surrounded themselves with, you know, when they were sort of hiring all these uh, session players uh, to play on their records, they got the best guys they could find. And most of those guys, a lot of those guys, if they were not, you know, sort of like some of them were rock guys who played with like the Doobie Brothers and things like that. But uh, a lot of them came from the world of jazz. So they were surrounding themselves with guys who could actually play jazz, like really sort of like serious uh, players.
0: Okay, so is this like part of why people are like so psycho about this band? Like what's the obsession? Like I feel like this is one of those bands, clearly because we're doing a show about it, that has that crazy obsessive fan base. Like what's that about?
1: Yeah, the jazz thing is probably part of it. And just, you know, nothing else really sounds like this when you get down to it. Like because they brought all these things in there. But I, I think also there's something about there are these very smooth yacht rocky kind of songs but then when you actually listen closely to them like there's so much uh, you know just uh, strangeness and ambiguity even a song like Ricky Don't Lose That Number it's like you don't really know what went on between the narrator and Ricky and what the scenario what the situation is and like what you know what Ricky's gotten into that he or she might have to make that phone call uh, to Donald Fagan at some point and I think it's you know that's typical of a Steely Dan song they have this ambiguity to them they are always talking about these like fictional characters who you're never fully introduced to and you have to figure out what their significance is in the world. You know, it's like who was Hoops McCann or something like that. You know, like you have to hear these names. And so I think like that just generates an obsessed fandom because fans are like, or, you know, you get an obsessed fandom if you give fans something to puzzle over forever and figure out in the same way that people have been trying to figure out like what Bob Dylan songs are about or, you know, like James Joyce or David Lynch or Thomas... Pynchon or, you know, any of those things.
0: Do you feel like that that same reasoning plays into, like, the, the new fans of Steely Dan? Because, like, I think it's pretty clear that there's been kind of a big resurgence in Steely Dan fandom amongst younger people, dare I say, hipper people. Um, like, can you talk a little bit about that,
1: that resurgence? It's weird because... Uh, it- I can really only equate it to my own experience where I got into them almost ironically. Like I thought it would be funny to start listening to Steely Dan. And then the more I listened to them, the more I started to just really unironically love it and get into it and kind of get into that weird fandom world of trying to figure out, you know, who these, you know, who these guys were and what they were singing about and like why they were singing these weird things. But so I feel like, you know, it, where that resurgence started is there. It, there's, you know, I feel like there's almost like a, there was a pop cultural resurgence of, you know, kind of jokes about Steely Dan. And that makes you curious about Steely Dan because you're like, what even is this band? Like, what is their, what is their deal? Like, you know, so you, there's something like, you know, there's that web series Yacht Rock uh, from the mid 2000s that I think had a lot to do with. Sort of just getting the idea of all of this music, all of this smooth Southern California studio-based music out there, the idea that this was a genre, and then you find out about them as a punchline, like Nick Kroll and John Mulaney's Oh Hello, uh, where they play these two very old and very sort of, if you ever lived in New York, these very recognizable New York characters. It's like them playing the guys who stand up at movie screenings and ask like a four-part question that's really more of a comment you know and it's like them it's a stage play where they play these two guys and one of the things like the, the Steely Dan is so important in their mythology because I guess Melanie in particular is a huge Steely Dan fan and so they do this that's uh, at some point they do a fake Steely Dan song that they've made up you know called Sweet Rosalie the id of the cocaine snort we both like to do cocaine God, what is that song? It's got to be Steely Dan, right? Oh, it's a billion percent Steely Dan. (laughs) So, and I think those kinds of things, like Yacht Rock, I think that makes you wonder about, it sort of, it starts, you figure out through comedy that maybe these things are weirder than you gave them credit for when you were hearing them at the grocery store, because like, it's placed in a different context, like... Steely Dead are actually an incredibly strange band. And one of the things that's incredibly strange about them is that disconnect between the smoothness of the music and the kind of darkness and weirdness of those lyrics. And I think once you start kind of checking it out, like as a goof or whatever, you suddenly like, you know, you go deeper and deeper into that world. I mean, if you're if you're me, if you're prone, you know, to sort of obsessive, uh, you know, deep diving into lyrics and things like that.
0: (laughs) Well, speaking of obsessive, we actually got the chance to talk to some Steely Dan fans. So here's what they had to say.
1: I think a lot of people have this preconception of Steely Dan, that they're this cheesy, sleazy dad rock, yacht rock band. And that's right. In fact, they are the apex of that style of music. The music is so smooth. They also
0: have a brilliant
1: sense of humor. They're soft. They're also very sarcastic. They always support themselves with the absolute best musicians available. Just accepted nothing less than perfection from the musicians in the studio. There are these monster musicians that played with them. Yeah, Chuck Rainey, Steve Gadd, Bernard Purdy. Just absolute animals of their time. And then they took that talent and put that talent through hell in the studio until they had perfection. Just telling them, do it again, do it again. It's not good enough, do it again. They're just like perfectly produced and layered, right? Steely Dan's Songs are like a canvas and they, they really let, you know, these masters of 70s rock and jazz fusion create masterpieces on top of their works. They're slick, they're cool, and no one else sounds like them. Just dig it, you know?
0: Those guys all just sounded like you, but with different voices.
1: I was really impressed by what those guys were saying. So maybe, yeah, maybe, look, we're all, we all kind of sound the same and we all sort of think that our opinion is, uh, you know, we're the first person to ever have it.
0: Seriously, though, there is a stereotype that all Steely Dan fans are like white men. But in this resurgence, it's showing us that that's not really true, right? In fact, recently I read this piece in the New York Times by journalist Lindsay Zolads, who is, in fact, a woman. I think it was called I'm Not a Dad, But I Rock Like One, all about her Steely Dan fandom. Did you read that?
1: I did. I mean, I think the whole resurgence is much less white and male than maybe the fandom was at one time. But I also think that that's a stereotype unto itself, but I understand where it comes from. Like the resurgence is about people going back and finding something different in Steely Dan than what they were told was there. But I think in the original concept of Steely Dan fandom, it's so bound up with technical proficiency, which is such a stereotypically male obsession in music. You know, not to say that there aren't uh, women out there who are, you know, love uh, Joe Satriani or whatever it is for the, you know, the tapping and the, you know, all that kind of like, like skills with a Z. But like that sort of like performance based thing I feel like is a stereotypically male preoccupation and like wanting to listen to music played by the the most absolute pros at the absolute top of their game in the same way that, you know, you look to sports for something like that. And like both of those things are stereotypes, but like there's truth in all of those stereotypes. I think basically what it is is, you know, maybe uh, more women are appreciating the greatest session musicians ever playing things perfectly because they've played them 5,000 times in a row.
0: Ruthlessly demanding perfection. I totally get why it's called dad rock
1: now. (laughs) And they weren't even dads at the time. Yeah, that perfectionism thing is really interesting. I think that that's, that's part of their reputation. And I think they tried to live up to it, but they are famous for rotating people in and out especially on solos like that was always the thing like there's something you know that they would get different people in to do the solo on a particular song and until they got what they wanted and what i find really interesting about their perfectionism is that you know while it gives them this reputation for being really uptight What they're trying to get perfect is often the solo, which is the point where there's this kind of outburst of emotion in the middle of a Steely Dan song, and they didn't necessarily know what they wanted. It wasn't that they were sort of dictating every time, like, play this here. They were waiting until they heard what they were actually looking for, and they wanted to try it seven different ways with seven different players. And I always found that to be really interesting because it was this uptight perfectionism in pursuit of this moment within the song that would be transcendent and would kind of like leap out of what they had been, you know, doing up till that point.
0: Take me to the beginning. How did you find Steely Dan? Like what was your Steely Dan Aha uh-huh moment! Your entry
1: point. It was my understanding that I was not supposed to like Steely Dan because I was a you know alternative rock kid in the '90s, and you grow up with the prejudices uh, that you get from that. And anybody who's too good at playing their instruments, you were that was a, a knee jerk kind of distrust that I had growing up, and then. I think what happened was there's an album called Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen from sure. San Pedro, California. Uh, one of the great uh, SST bands, uh, one of the great punk bands, full stop uh, to me. Shout out Mike Watt. Shout out Mike Watt, RIP D. Boone, shout out George Hurley. Um, and they, that's a very long record where they do a lot, of the, not a lot, but there's like three covers on there. They do a Creedence song. Uh, they do Ain't Talking About Love by Van Halen and they do Dr. Wu. By Steely Dan, they do a version of it that sounds like they maybe are hear, heard it for the first time earlier that day and are just kind of singing it together and working it out. But it's so it sounds nothing like the Steely Dan version. But there was a point where records cost a dollar, like that's weird now because old records are twenty five dollars now. But at the time when you could just take a flyer on something, uh, "Katie Lyde" was a buck. Uh, "Katie Lied by Steely Dan, and I think in some hall of dollar records, I was like, I'll check this out because the Minutemen covered this. And their version of it really doesn't sound a lot like the Steely Dan version. It's a very uh, sort of just coming together in the moment. They sound Their harmonies are not anywhere near dialed in in a way that Donald Fagan and Walter Becker uh, would uh, appreciate. But uh, just for comparison so you can hear where they took it, uh, we're going to listen to a little bit of the Minutemen's version of Dr. Wu. Don't, Don't seem right. right. I've been out here all here all night. Night. There's something about it, and it made me tick flyer on Katie Lide uh, for a dollar. Um, it was worth a buck. Um, and then you get into Katie Lide and you're like, oh, wait, this is weirder than I thought it was. There's a lot going on here. But let's hear the Steely Dan version of Dr. Wu.
0: Okay. I've definitely heard that song also. Like I'm 99% sure I've heard that song. And I just, again, did not know it was Steely Dan, which I do feel there's a pattern forming here. Anyway, Dr. Wu, that song is off their first album, Katie Lied. I have a theory that the first album you discover of an artist is always your favorite one. Like for example, for me with The Replacements, the first album of theirs that I heard when I was like 12 years old was Let It Be. And that will forever be my favorite replacements album. It doesn't mean it's the best one. It's just because it was the first entry point I had to that artist. It's really special to me. By that token, is Katie Lide your favorite Steely Dan album?
1: Sometimes I think Katie Lide is my favorite Steely Dan album, and sometimes it's gaucho. But when I am answering in a room full of Steely Dan fans, uh, it is definitely the second one, Countdown to Ecstasy, which does not have as many big songs on it, but is sort of the most sonically varied. And it's kind of, it's like their wowie zowie or something. It kind of goes all over the place. And, uh, you know, this one in particular, uh, you'll hear some country stuff in here, some pedal steel. And, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of those kind of weird. It's the one they recorded on tour. So it's got a sort of like on tour kind of vibe to it. And uh, the song is called King of the World.
0: A lot going on there.
1: There is a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Tell me about it. One of the things that's really interesting about Steely Dan is how much they pulled from different genres that don't seem to go together. And that's obviously, that's something everybody kind of has the freedom to do now. It's easier than ever to do that. But... That song is that's a '70s song where they're pulling in. There's a uh there's some pedal steel in there. There's some very country pedal steel, and then the tra- you hear that transition into what's basically like that song sounds like it could be on Dots and Loops by Stereolab. Like it really has this very uh sort of uh, you know kind of strange synth break in there that has nothing to do with trying to sound country. Like they liked those sounds, but didn't really care if they matched each other that well. If they didn't you know went You know, went together in that way, and then it's all in the service of this song that is a post-apocalyptic scenario about you know it's like any man left on the Rio Grande, like, and they're smoking cobalt cigarettes because everything is irradiated. You know, it's a sort of like they were like they read a lot of sci-fi novels and they drew on that a lot, and so I think that's you know, obviously another reason for their allure to nerds.
0: Okay, Alex, what what do we call Steely Dan fans? We are Dan fans, Dan. Dan mans
1: I've been trying to make Danimals happen. Danimals, because that's that doesn't you know that doesn't contain uh, you know a gendered uh, response you know because I think we're trying you know I I really want to encourage uh, you know this sort of uh, the the breaking down of this stereotype about Steely Dan fans and so Danimals is kind of across the board it could be anybody.
0: That's good. The last bastion of third wave feminism is um, <laughs> being able to like Steely Dan. Steely Dan. Fandom. Being able to admit that I like Steely Dan. What do you think? You know, if you polled the Reddit group of Steely Dan fans, what do you think is like the generally agreed upon best work of the band?
1: So we're jumping ahead in their career a little bit. In 1974, they stopped touring. They had been a touring band and they were a very good touring band, but eventually they just, they didn't enjoy it as much. They didn't like getting out there. They were studio guys fundamentally, and they wanted to sort of remain in the studio. And so sort of where all of that really pays off in the greatest way is the album Asia, which is, you've seen that one. It's the black cover uh, with the the geisha girl and the sort of the red, uh, you know, that one like red stripe. Um, It's a very iconic album cover. It's their most jazz record, but not in the way that you would imagine a rock band getting really into jazz would sound because the thing that they took from jazz was not like the freedom or like the noise or like, you know, trying to sound like way out kind of John Coltrane or anything like that. But, you know, this kind of smoothness and professionalism and these like high quality solos by really serious jazz players. They have like Wayne Shorter, who's in Miles Davis's greatest band, Joe Sample, Larry Carlton, all of those people. And they also have a man, named Michael McDonald, who you are probably familiar with. He went on to be a doobie brother. He went on to be Michael McDonald. He went on to be, you know, a joke in The 40-Year-Old Virgin um, (laughs) and has seen kind of all of these things. I interviewed him uh, last year uh, for something, and sort of he was kind of saying, like, you know, if you stay in here long enough, like, you know, you get to he was kind of philosophical about the 40-year-old virgin thing. And it was like, you kind of get to come back around and people sort of appreciate you again. And I think he was starting to see that, like younger bands are really getting into him. So Michael McDonald is a vocalist. He's an incredible vocalist. And he kind of does the things with, you know, in the same way that Steely Dan used really great bass players and really great sax players and found just the, like the best guy for the best job in each of, the, on each of these songs. He was the singer who sang the things that they couldn't sing. And so I'm going to play a song called Peg by Steely Dan, which has, you know, there's an amazing thing in there that you will, you'll hear it and it just is going to sound like a good chord, but it's actually three Michael McDonald's singing one note that forms a chord, like a multi-tracked, a chorus of Michael McDonald's. Let's hear Steely Dan featuring three Michael McDonald's. It's Peg.
0: Just literally had no idea that that was Steely Dan. Never thought to inquire into who perhaps made this song, but I definitely know it. And you know what? Despite it having some lyrics to the effect of a man telling a woman to smile, I really like it. I really like that song.
1: Well, that song did not just occur randomly in nature. That is a Steely Dan song that you were vibing to.
0: It seems so. So many so many songs I am so aware of to the point that like I know the words to them, but I didn't know they were Steely Dan songs. That's their legacy. (laughs) You know our songs. You just don't know we made them.
1: Well, there you go. And just while we're talking about Peg, I just wanted to throw in because I spoke earlier about the Minutemen cover that kind of turned me into a Steely Dan fan in a roundabout way. But really, technically, probably the first Steely Dan song I ever heard big chunks of uh, repeatedly is this song because it's sampled in the song I Know by De La Soul on the first De La Soul album, Me, Myself and I. So uh, let's if you want, let's listen to the De La Soul song uh, I Know that uh, samples Steely Dan. Stay with me, I know this, But not because of all my earthly treasures, or regardless to the fact that I'm pass the loose, but because I, I, love you,
0: I actually that's super interesting. I had no idea that rappers were so into Steely Dan. Um outside of De La Sole, like what can you tell me more about where Steely Dan exists in rap music?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think probably the, you know, the most recent and prominent one is uh, Champion by Kanye, uh, which samples Kid Charlemagne and like a big chunk of it. And like, it it is a, you know, it's a cleared sample. And he, you know, they like, apparently he wrote them a very impassioned letter and talked about, you know, sort of how it was about his mom. And normally they don't uh, clear samples uh, for things. They're uh, pretty, like I said, pretty uh, persnickety about that. Um, but that, you know, did you realize you were a champion in their eyes? That's a, that's Donald Fagan. That's, you know, Steely Dan. Um, so that's like a big bite of it. Um, the song black cow has been sampled a lot. The most known one is deja vu uptown baby by Lord Tariq and Peter guns. And, you know, you'll just sort of, you'll know that right away. If you hear that, the whole, basically the whole song is black cow. And I'm pretty sure, they sued Lord Tariq and Peter Guns out of existence because there was—you never heard from Lord Tariq and Peter Guns ever again. But uh, the one I really love that uses Black How in a cool way is uh, "Gas Draws" by MF Doom, um, <gasps> underground rap legend. Let's hear a clip from that MF Doom song.
0: Gas I'm kind of in, okay? Like, I don't ever need to hear Reelin in in the years again as long as I live, even though that's not available to me. I will hear it probably a hundred more times before I die. But, like, Peg is good. It's making me want to do a little more research, hear a few more songs. I want to hear from you, like, what's the underrated Steely Dan jam? Like, what's the one that even your other Danimals might be like, I don't know about this song, Alex,
1: but you love it. I mean, that's an... Interesting one because I feel like it's a very obsessive fan base and a relatively small catalog. And so people all kind of know all of them. But I think the one that I like the most and doesn't feel like it's always talked about, it's not like a greatest hits album selection. It's not one of the ones that people know about. There's a song called Home at Last. So I'm going to tell a story about this song, Home at Last. I remembered once David Duchovny put this song on a celebrity playlist that I saw of David Duchovny's favorite songs. And subsequent to that, I had the job of going to interview David Duchovny about the album that he had made of his own original songs. (laughs) And I went to go meet with David Duchovny he was not psyched to see me, which was weird in a promotional capacity. I was five minutes early and I showed up to his table at a restaurant and I said, oh, hey, David, I'm sorry. I'm like about five minutes early. And he's like, well, can you come back in five minutes? Wow, harsh. And I never really, you know, I wasn't prepared to get harshed uh, in that way. Um, and I was kind of on my back foot for the rest of the conversation. But I had this, you know, I had this thing that I thought sort of I have in my pocket that like, what do me and David Duchovny share? What do we have in common? We both love the album Asia by Steely Dan. And specifically the song Home at Last from Asia, which is a song kind of about uh, Homer's odyssey and kind of about being married. And it's one of the great uh, songs about, uh, you know, companionate coupledom and sort of going away from somebody and coming back home uh, with all the sort of emotions that that entails. And there was a moment when we started talking about it during that conversation, me and David Duchovny. And I was like, "Uh, you know, I got Asia out in the car on CD. We can cut this interview short and go out there and listen to it. And I didn't totally mean it. Although if he had said yes, I would have gone. But he was very upset. He was like, "No, and that was the end of that conversation." And I think we moved on.
0: Yeah, I was gonna. I was waiting. Like I was gonna say that worked because that's truly like a psychotic thing to say to somebody in an interview. I have to say, Alex,
1: David Duchovny, <laughs> please go with me to a second location. I promise that I am not an obsessed X Files fan who's gonna keep you prisoner in a basement and force you to make more X-Files or less X-Files, I think maybe would be what you would do.
0: Steely Dan did not bring you guys together is the ending of this story, is what you're saying?
1: No, we were separated across a gulf of time and emotion and uh, (laughs) sort of a differential in wanting to be there level, um, I think is what happened. But uh, Home at Last is a jam It is a beautiful song with a very complicated drum part, the famous Bernard Purdy shuffle. So here it is, the song that David Duchovny and I both love separately from our own sort of boundaries, Home at Last by Steely Dan. So those drums, that's Bernard Purdy on the drums, the great Bernard Purdy, just session drummer, funk drummer, unparalleled, uh, used to come in the studio. This is something that I know from the Classic Albums documentary. When he would show up to do a session date for a band, he would break out these two signs, like these sort of like signs on, on poles, you know, like, at a, like a sign that tells you like this area is out of order or whatever. It would say, so. I th- it said something like, you done did it. You done hired the hit maker, Bernard Purdy. And like put it in front of the drum kit just so everybody knew that they had hired the hit maker. So I feel like that is the thing that we should all sort of lean towards when we bring our talents to any situation is that we should let everybody know that they have brought in the hit maker.
0: Yeah, we all need like 20% more of that energy just in life. Um, What do you love about that song, Alex? What do you and David Duchovny both love about that song?
1: Well, I think... David really sort of thought... Yeah, I'm not going to give you David Duchovny's <laughs> thoughts on it, but I think his thing was was kind of my thing, which is that it nails something about Los Angeles. It nails something about marriage. There is a feeling, though. I think about it a lot whenever I'm flying back into L.A., having been somewhere else, when he's singing about, like, I know this superhighway, this bright, familiar sun. There's something about it. Th- those two lines always make me just... It's It captures, for me, the feeling of missing this place in all of its kind of weird scummy beauty that it has sometimes and the way that light hits Los Angeles, you know, at a certain time of the day and thinking about it and then kind of imagining yourself because there are these references in it to the, the, the odyssey to being tied to the mast, which is what like they have to do with like Odysseus so that he doesn't get, you know, the sirens don't call him away to the rocks. You know, the danger of the rocks is surely past and I remain tied to the mast. And so it's, you're on the other side of this thing. And there's, There's something very steely Dan about being a normal person and imagining yourself in these kind of, you know, very exaggerated mythical terms that come from the Odyssey. And I I, I sort of I, I always like that about them because I think they're they're really good at not only creating these protagonists who are losers and you know struggling and you know kind of like undone by their own uh, wants and desires and things like that but also capturing the way that they are heroes in their own mind in some ways and i think that that's this is sort of that's the ultimate example of that also those drums are just like tight there's just like that like like coming out of the verse like that's a really really nice sounding drum part Um, Because you can get into the tastiness of the licks. That's the thing. You can sort of, there are all these different levels that it operates on.
0: You said tastiness of the licks.
1: I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to say it enough times that you can't cut all of them out.
0: (laughs) Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to be here to educate me and my listeners about Steely Dan. You really sold it.
1: No need to thank me. I would be sitting in a closet at my house talking about Steely Dan, even if we had not arranged to do this. So, it's good that it can be. This
0: is just, this is just what you do every afternoon. So we just, we just had the good fortune of capturing it on audio.
1: Yep, yeah, Sun gets above the yard arm and I just start talking about uh, Asia and Deacon <laughs> Blues and all that stuff. <laughs> Great there.
0: Well, thank you for doing it anyway. And thank you all for listening. Maybe you guys also didn't realize that you knew every Steely Dan song in existence, or maybe now you all of a sudden love Steely Dan so much and you really want to dive into their catalog. Alex, what song do you want to leave our listeners with?
1: I think we should close with some proof that this uh, most studio of studio bands could also really kind of bring it in a live setting. This was from June 1974. It's basically the, I think it's the very last tour of Steely Dan as a touring unit, after which kind of like the Beatles, they just became studio people all the time. Um, And this is a song called Bodhisattva. It's a really good version of it. Just you can they they just they play it really fast. Like they have to be somewhere. But the thing that's also great about it is that during this time they had a truck driver and uh, guitar tech who was also their MC. His name was Jerome Anton, and on this night he had very clearly had a couple of drinks. And when you listen to the intro that he gives them, which is amazing, you can also I think hear the guys in the band enjoying it as well, kind of cracking up in the background, and that's kind of what I love about it. From the box set, Citizen Steely Dan, this is Bodhisattva live at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. The one and
0: only one, Mr. Steely Dan. Whatever. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Bandsplain for more episodes, only on Spotify. Bandsplain is a Spotify original series produced in partnership with Spoke Media. This episode was produced and edited by Cody Hoffmuckle with help from Sharita Lynn Solis and Dylan Rupert. Mixing and sound design by Will Short. Our executive producers for Spoke Media are Aaliyah Tavakolian, Keith Reynolds, and Janiel Kastner. Our executive producers for Spotify are Liz Gately, Gina Dalvac, and me, Yossi Salak. Our catchy and gorgeous theme song was composed and performed by Bethany Cosentino and Jennifer Clavin, and graciously recorded by Carlos De La Garza. Thank you to our Steely Dan fans, Bill Mayo, Tyler Beckett, Max Edelson, and Jim Kunzer for providing their voices for this episode. Special thanks to Felipe Guillermino, Leah Edwards, Dana Meyerson, and the frame drawing of Dave Matthews I got on Depop whose spirit guides this entire show.